0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation President and CEO, Dr.
1: Richard Besser, and George Washington University Public Health Professor, Dr. Lena Nguyen, join the Post to discuss the next critical steps in the fight against COVID-19. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Yasmina Butaleb. I'm a health policy reporter with the Washington Post. Today, I'm talking with two experts about the next critical steps in the fight against COVID-19. My first guest today is Dr. Richard Besser, president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He was also the acting director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2009. Dr. Besser, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
2: Thank you, it's It's really great to be here.
1: So I want to start with um, some of the news we've learned this week. Uh, There's been a lot of developments on the vaccine front. The first thing is that, perhaps most critically, the FDA said this week that it found Pfizer's vaccine safe and effective. An advisory committee will be meeting tomorrow to evaluate Pfizer's data um, and decide whether to give it an emergency authorization. What's the importance of this transparent process we're seeing in terms of the vaccine authorization and what does it mean about where the country can go in its vaccination campaign?
2: Well, this is this is critical. This is critically important. You know, over the over the past 9 months, we've seen so many instances where politics has, has injected itself into, into science. And there's been concern about drug approval that's been politicized without the normal, normal uh, uh, mechanisms to ensure things were safe and effective. Um, so this process, this is the, the way FDA approaches the approval of new drugs and new, new vaccines. Um, unlike in some other com- uh, countries where the regulatory body takes data analysis that a company has done, and looks at that and decides whether to approve. Here, technical experts at the Food and Drug Administration, career scientists, get the raw data uh, from the company. And then they do their own analysis to see, do they think it's effective? Do they think it's safe? Do they think that there are additional studies that need to be done? And then they post that information out there for the public to see, and for their advisory committee to see. And, And so tomorrow, on Thursday, the advisory committee is going to meet they're going to hear presentations from experts at the cdc experts from fda company representatives and then they'll deliberate on those questions but when i looked at the report and the materials online um it's an absolutely uh, their findings are that this is a stellar vaccine that it's it's quite safe it's quite quite effective in all the age ranges that it was uh, uh tested on uh, the, the side effects that they found were were minor. Most people can affect, expect to have sore arms and especially after the second dose to feel uh, pretty lousy for a couple of days. But in terms of, of, of serious side effects, uh, they didn't find any. And in terms of effectiveness, it was better than anyone had anticipated. Uh, but, you know, as a as a, uh, you know, a, a general pediatrician uh, and as a public health uh, practitioner, Um, I really look to this process at FDA. So I'm going to be looking closely at these deliberations. And if this committee comes forward and says uh, strongly that they recommend this, then I'll feel comfortable recommending it to to my my patients, uh, to my parents. uh, And when it's uh, my turn, uh, I'll be looking forward to getting in line and getting that vaccine.
1: You mentioned some minor side effects that people experience. And I wonder if you can tell us what we know so far about some of the adverse uh, effects we're hearing about from people in the UK who have begun taking the vaccine who have known allergies.
2: Yeah, this is it it was a surprising report that came out uh, after the UK had just started using this vaccine, that there were two recipients of the vaccine. Both were individuals who had a history of of serious allergic reactions in the past. So individuals who had to carry around with them uh, a device to be able to administer epinephrine if they were having a a serious reaction. Uh, And these two individuals had serious reactions. I haven't seen more details than that about it, but it was enough for the UK public health system to uh, issue a warning and to recommend that people who have uh, severe allergies to drugs or to foods uh, that require them to to carry uh, epinephrine with them that they not get the vaccine i would expect that the fda commission uh, uh, committee tomorrow is going to want to explore that a little bit more uh, one of the questions i think they would have is did the drug trial did the vaccine trials that were done exclude people from participation who had a history of allergic reactions uh, and if so that might lead them to want to do more studies or to issue cautions here uh, but there are a lot of people who have uh, serious allergic uh, 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 conditions and and food allergies, uh, and then there's a ton of people who have seasonal hay fever and, and mild allergies. And there, people are going to want to know what does this mean for them.
1: Another uh, big piece of news we learned this week is that the U.S. government did not take Pfizer up on an offer to purchase 200 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine. And now uh, it seems that the U.S. has found itself in a situation where Pfizer's informed the government. It may not be able to provide substantial additional doses until June or July after uh, the first 100 million are used through March. So, I mean, what does that mean for the nation's vaccination campaign? And do you think this was simply a bad call or is it a a lack of long-term vision?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's it's either of those. I think this is a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, wh- when I look back on the response of this administration to, to the pandemic, uh, there are a lot of things that r- gravely concern me. But one of the things that I think that they did really well was invest in a big way on the development of vaccines and, and medications to, to counter COVID. Um, And what they did was they gave companies assurances that the U.S. government would purchase vaccine if it were if it were found to be safe and effective. Um, There are many products that are in development. There are many products that are that are uh, being tested in in trials. And so, you know, I expect that what happened was that the government was hedging its bets and didn't want to put too much in any one product in case it turned out that. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine was less effective than others. Uh, they wanted to be able to have some flexibility there. Uh, the idea that we've got vaccine potentially that people are going to start to get uh, this month um, is, to, in my mind, pretty miraculous. That that less than a year, uh, uh, less than a year since the the genetic structure of this virus was identified, there will be licensed vaccine for use. Um, that is absolutely uh, an incredible public health accomplishment.
1: Pfizer obviously seems to have an extraordinarily successful vaccine. At one point, it looked like AstraZeneca was the front runner and was probably going to provide the U.S. with a, a large bulk of its doses. Now, the most promising candidates look to be Pfizer and Moderna's. What do we know happened there? And what do you think it says about the nature of vaccine development?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think it speaks to the point I, I made a moment ago is that you know, there are a lot of products that are in development and we're going to have to see how, the, how they play out. I was very concerned over the past six months that every time a pharmaceutical company put out a press release uh, stating how wonderful their product was, uh, there was, there was a, a, a massive media flurry that the pandemic is about to be over because we've got this most of those early press releases were what are called phase one and phase two trials. And they were simply to look to see, is the, is the product safe in a, in a small number of people? Uh, what dose should be given? Uh, and is there a sign that people make antibody to that? Until you put these products into large scale clinical trials like we're seeing now, you really don't know uh, enough about safety and effectiveness to to be able to say too much. It's interesting here that with the AstraZeneca uh, trial, uh, a mistake that they made in that trial, uh, that mistake was giving a a, a small subset of of study participants um, a half dose of vaccine uh, instead of a full dose. It it looks like people in that group um, actually uh, had a bigger immune response when they received the second dose than those who received a full the study wasn't designed to look at that. The numbers are too small to truly answer that. But it may, uh, you know, warrant then further study to see is there a different dosing schedule for the AstraZeneca vaccine that would make it worth uh, worth uh, changing and doing further study. Um, there are real challenges, as we've talked about, with both the Pfizer vaccine uh, and the Moderna vaccine in terms of storage. The Pfizer vaccine, in particular, requiring temperatures of minus 94 Fahrenheit in order to, to not start to, uh, to degradate. Um, for, the, for the Moderna, it's not quite as cold, but it would be wonderful if we were able to get to the point where there was a vaccine that didn't require anything more than uh, a normal refrigerator or freezer uh, and required only one dose to give a significant uh, response. You know, that was another thing I, I didn't mention about the, the FDA analysis and the data that were put up with the Pfizer vaccine. One of the things in there that I thought was really exciting is that uh, they were able to show that uh, after your first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, one week after that dose, your protective levels were, were about 54%. So even though it's a two-dose regimen with, with uh, four weeks between those two doses, there is some protection after the first dose. And uh, that's, that's wonderful because the, the sooner you can get high-risk individuals protected, uh, the better it will be.
1: The U.S. government has said that it wants to vaccinate 20 million people by the end of the year. Is that timeline still feasible?
2: Uh, Well, you know, we'll see what the FDA uh, uh, says tomorrow. If they approve this, uh, then it sounds like it, it will be. Every state has been working on distribution plans. And what we saw... Um, uh, a week ago was the CDC Advisory Committee. Uh, It's called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Um, They did something that they've never done before. They put forward recommendations on who should get a vaccine before the vaccine was approved by the FDA. And the reason they did that was they wanted to give states a little more time to think about, okay, if FDA approves this vaccine, um, who are we supposed to be giving it to? And what they said was it should go to uh, uh, healthcare workers, and to uh, people who are residents in long-term care facilities and people who work in those long-term care facilities. So states are, 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 are ready, they're, they're identifying how they're gonna administer this vaccine. In, in particular, what we're hearing from the UK is there, there are real challenges in a, administering a vaccine that needs to be kept so cold. Uh, and so it may be that, that uh, there are real challenges to long-term care facilities that are in rural communities, uh, to to uh, um, healthcare facilities that don't have access to really cold temperatures, and one of the things that's so, so critically important here, and uh, uh, some states are focused on this, but but not all, is you know as you look at how this pandemic has played out around the country, with with uh, uh, every community being hit, but Black, Latino, Native Americans being hit disproportionately high, it's critically important that healthcare facilities not just Uh, uh, that that serve wealthier communities, but all healthcare facilities get access to these products so that healthcare workers, um, uh, many of whom are people of color, are are getting access to this vaccine uh, in, in those early groups.
1: Well, That actually leads me to my next question, which is the pandemic has exposed enormous inequities across the country. A key one, of course, being that black and brown communities have been hit disproportionately hard. So, how do you address those disparities? And when we're talking about vaccine distribution, how do you ensure equity and sort of answer some of these difficult ethical questions about who should be vaccinated and when?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a real challenge, and I know it's it's something that the the CDC advisory committee has been deliberating on. Uh, how do you ensure that the groups that are most at risk are are? Uh, getting vaccinated earlier, being offered vaccine early. And what their approach is, is given that the the primary driver of the increased rates of disease and hospitalization and death uh, among people of color is exposure risk. If you're addressing those who are at the greatest exposure risk, you will uh, be taking an equity approach and you will be providing vaccine uh, to uh, groups that have been disproportionately affected. So, you know, if, if, if the, the group after, if you look at healthcare workers and you're including in there home healthcare workers, nursing home workers, I mean, all workers in healthcare facilities, there is a high proportion of people who, who are uh, Black and Latino in those groups. Um, if you then move on after these two groups and start uh, vaccinating frontline essential workers, uh, so first responders and teachers and uh, people who work in food production and transportation, again, you will be targeting a high proportion of people of color. uh, And that's really important. But it's also essential that states keep data and they're transparent around vaccine rates. Because one of the things we've seen in terms of polling coming into this is that there are are pretty high levels of of vaccine hesitancy and and, uh, uh, mistrust coming in. Uh, I expect that as there's more experience with the vaccine and and, uh, we see what happens with the initial recipients, that the demand, the, the desire for vaccination will increase, but it's absolutely critical that states and the federal government work with communities, identify trusted leaders, and ensure that people's questions are being addressed. You can't berate people into getting vaccinated. You have to meet people where they are, address their, uh, their concerns and their needs, especially given the long history of structural racism in our country. Uh, the long history of experimentation in communities of color that has to be overcome here with uh, these programs moving forward.
1: There have been discussions about cost and ensuring that everyone who wants to get the vaccine can get it. Should the vaccine be free for all Americans, and is that something that's feasible?
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're we're uh, the the wealthiest nation on this planet. Uh, Vaccines should vaccination should be absolutely free. Uh, and uh, you know, we could talk about their, of, of all the things that need to be in place to ensure that, that this pandemic uh, uh, doesn't continue to have such disparate impact on lower-income uh, individuals, on, on communities of color. Uh, we need Congress to step up and put money in people's pockets uh, so that an individual who's been exposed, uh, an individual who may feel a little sick, uh, doesn't have to choose between staying home to keep themselves and their community safe we're going to work so they can put food on the table and, and pay the rent. You know, Congress has not done their job, and there are millions of people who are facing eviction uh, in January. Uh, there are millions of people who are, are, are facing uh, uh, loss of their of their homes uh, due to uh, mortgage foreclosure, uh, and the government just hasn't done their job. They haven't worked to protect small businesses. So, you know, here we are in this nation talking about uh, making a choice between closing bars and restaurants and putting people out of work because those have been identified as uh, uh, as places of transmission, but not providing the relief that small businesses need so that on the other side of this pandemic, they're able to to open their doors again and serve serve the public. That's just not the way it should be in this nation.
1: Do you think it should be taken a step further that the government should pay people to take the vaccine?
2: No, I don't. I, I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think that uh, vaccines should be mandated. I don't think that people should be paid to to uh, take the vaccine. I think people should be uh, given resources so that they're able to do those measures to protect health, uh, and that means the to be able to stay home if uh, if they're sick and social distance. Uh, you know, if you look if you look at the the current response when people are told they they're they're COVID positive. Uh, a very low percentage of people are willing to say who they've had contact with. And the reason for that is that for many people, if they're identified as a contact and have to stay home for two weeks, they're gonna lose their job. Uh, so dollars need to go out, but not to pay people to, to do a vaccine. In, in order to get people to, to, to get vaccinated, we have to address people's concerns and, and uh, you know, that, that starts tomorrow with the FDA process and making sure that it's not politicized any further.
1: I think we have time quickly for one last question, and I want to ask an audience question from Eric Godfrey in Wisconsin. And his question is, how will tracking be done of who has been vaccinated?
2: Yeah, so, so this is really challenging. You know, I'm a general pediatrician, and uh, when children come into our clinic and we're trying to decide what vaccines they need, in New Jersey, we're able to go online and we're look, we can look to see what vaccines they've had, whether it was in our clinic or another clinic. Here, we're looking to vaccinate just about everyone in our nation, and we don't have those electronic systems in, in place, and we have multiple vaccine products. And so what we're seeing is that people will likely have a vaccine card so that that card will will, uh, uh, indicate what vaccine they had and when, uh, so that when they need another vaccine, you can look at that card and say, okay, the first dose was with Pfizer, the second dose has to be with Pfizer. You know, that's a start, but we have to get to the point where we have electronic systems that can track people. And I hope that this pandemic will lead us to move forward in the ways that it's helping us move forward with things like telemedicine, uh, that, that has made certain types of, of care more accessible to, to more people in, in, in remote places. Um, it will be a real challenge, especially as more as more products come online, and knowing that people are mobile, so you may get your first dose of vaccine in one state and then move to another state that has different rules and, and, and requirements around vaccination. So there are a lot of challenges here that each state is having to deal with, and if Congress doesn't give more money to states uh, to uh, to support these systems. Uh, we will be in real trouble since states don't have the ability to run a deficit the way the federal government does.
1: Well, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave things there. Dr. Besser, thank you so much for joining us. It was a fascinating discussion. We'll have much more our, We'll have much more of our program coming up. Please stay tuned. I'll be back with Dr. Lena Wen right after this short intro video. Our hospitals can no longer safely take care of the patients, any more patients coming in. If you're just joining us, I'm Yasmina Abutalib, a health policy reporter with The Washington Post. My next guest is Dr. Lena Wen. She's a public health professor at George Washington University, a medical contributor for CNN, and also a med- uh, contributor for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Of course, I'm glad to join you, Yasmeen. So,
1: Dr. Wen, I want to start by talking about the alarmingly high number of cases the country is experiencing right now. Uh, Dr. Fauci has said we have a surge superimposed upon a surge. A lot of this is being driven by Thanksgiving travel and people getting together. Are you concerned that with Christmas coming up and the holidays that the healthcare system could soon exceed what it's capable of treating? And how do you convince people to stay home and take those public health measures during the holidays?
0: Yeah, so I'm extremely concerned about where we are as a country right now because we are seeing some devastating numbers. Really, these numbers are the worst case scenario of what we could have possibly imagined several months ago. If you had told us several months ago that we would at a point where we could soon exceed 3,000 deaths a day, that we're consistently seeing more than 200,000 new infections. And by the way, we have not even seen the impact of Thanksgiving yet because we know that the incubation period is up to 14 days. And so it's actually just just this week that we are going to begin to see the impacts of Thanksgiving travel when 50 million people or so traveled and gathered. And by the time that we get to uh, by the time that we get to see those numbers reflected in hospitalizations. And by the way, these are already hospitals that are so overwhelmed already. That takes us into Christmas and into New Year's, where we may have yet another surge upon this unsustainable surge. And so I am deeply concerned because our hospitals are already at the brink and i know this is hard to say but we are already rationing care because when you have an icu nurse who let's say normally takes care of five patients who's now taking care of 10. when you have people working in icus who don't normally who are not normally trained to do so patients are getting less than ideal care that doesn't just affect patients with coronavirus but also other ailments as well and so to your point about how to convince people frankly i'm not sure because People are not acting like we have this dire situation. And now is really the time for us to hunker down because we have to get through this winter. As great news as these vaccines that you and Dr. Besser have just been talking about, the vaccines are not going to save us this winter. The only things we have this winter to save us are those same public health measures we've been talking about all along, wearing a mask, physical distancing, not having indoor gatherings.
1: Another worrying trend is we're seeing nurses and doctors quit because of exhaustion, feelings of isolation. Uh, A lot of them are working in unsafe conditions without uh, adequate personal protective equipment. So you see hospitals and healthcare facilities having personnel shortages. What does that mean as we're fighting this next phase of the pandemic? and, And how concerning is that as we get further and further into the winter?
0: we as a country are not prepared for something of this scale that we are currently facing. And what I mean is when you look at how we normally do preparedness, we are ready for, let's say, a hurricane that strikes one area, a region, for a specific period of time, because then supplies and staff critically can be flown in from other places to help that one place that's inundated. Well, that's what happened back in March and April when it was New York City, the Northeast, parts of Seattle, Washington that were hard Hard hit That's also what happened in June and July when it was the sunbelt, California, um, Florida, that, that were hard-hit Arizona, Texas. Then you could get supplies and staff come from other places to relieve those healthcare workers. But now, when it's all 50 states, when the entire country is a hotbed of infection, you just don't have relief. And I think the other issue is... People are burned out because there is no end in sight. We don't even know when this current peak is going to hit. Maybe it'll be in January, but maybe it'll be after that. And I think it's an extremely difficult time. And I think what people need to realize, too, is that hospitals are the last line of defense. Individuals in the community are the first line of defense. And so what we do in our daily lives that's what's going to be so critical for saving our healthcare system and in, in addition, to protecting one another too.
1: Well, Dr. Besser and I were talking about a lot of encouraging news on the vaccine front this week. But one question we're not seeing discussed as much is whether the vaccine will actually prevent recipients from passing infection on to someone else. What does the data tell us about that so far?
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a really important point, And I'm glad that you're bringing this up because it's important for us to talk about what the data show and what they do not show. So what the data show, and by the way, I'll just say that the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccine data, it's better than what I could have possibly imagined in my wildest dreams. If you had told me back in January, even a couple months ago, that we would have vaccines that look to be safe and that are so effective, 94 to 95 percent efficacious, that's incredible. And so this is great news. And the other great thing about the data so far from the Pfizer studies, at least that we've seen, is that it's consistent across age groups and across racial and ethnic minorities, which is really important because you want to make sure, ideally, that this is a vaccine that works for all people, and it appears um, to be so thus far. The endpoints, though, that are studied were preventing symptomatic disease which is wonderful, right? That's really important. If we're able to prevent people from getting symptoms to the point that they're ill, also if we're able to prevent people from then progressing onto severe disease to the point that they're hospitalized or they die, that's also really important. Ideally, you can render this the virus that causes COVID-19 to be just like other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. I mean, wouldn't that be great if all you get is the mild sniffles and maybe you don't feel well, but you don't end up in the hospital or you die? That's great. So far, though, the data are not yet showing that getting the vaccine reduces transmission. And so in theory, you could still be infected. Maybe you're asymptomatic and you just don't know it and are able to pass it on to others. And so I think it's really important as we start doing mass vaccinations to send that message to until we get further information that just because you are vaccinated doesn't mean that you can now go roam about society, not wear masks, not social distance and and just live your normal life. Because even if you are protected, other people around you are not yet. And so that's also why we need more data, but also why we need to achieve ideally herd immunity through vaccination.
1: And what do we know about some of the short term side effects of these vaccines?
0: So we know that there are side effects, and I'm glad that you're mentioning this. I just wrote um, a piece for for, for the Washington Post, in fact, about this, about the importance of us disclosing and being very open about what the side effects are. So there are two types of short-term side effects, both, again, normal and expected. Um, these types of side effects, one is at the injection site. So you could get pain, redness, swelling at the injection site. Then the second type of symptom is systemic symptoms. That's your body's response. And so you could get fevers, chills, headache, muscle aches. Um, You could get fatigue. Um, And some of these side effects are, are very uncomfortable to people for a short time. I mean, hours to a few days. And the reason why I think it's so important for us to talk about it is that I don't want for people, since both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine require two doses, the last thing that we would want is for people to get the first dose and then not come back for the second dose because they had expected normal side effects. I also don't want people to be discouraged from taking the vaccines because of these side effects. The the side effects actually show that the vaccines are effective and they are incomparable to what happens if you do get coronavirus and you do end up getting very ill. You could be ill for weeks. You could end up on a ventilator. You could end up passing the infection onto others. But if we are not open about the side effects, if we choose to downplay them, then I think that could really breed distrust. And in this time when so much has already been politicized and polarized, um, when there is so much disinformation about, we really need to emphasize transparency and disclosure.
1: And um, do you have any concerns about safety long-term, given that we don't really know about long-term side effects yet?
0: I mean, this is an important question for us to be asking because this is in fact a new technology. It's a new vaccine. And of course, because it's new, we don't know about the long-term side effects. And it's not possible for us to prove that there aren't long-term side effects. Now, biologically, we don't expect for there to be long-term side effects. When we look at the history of other vaccines, the vast majority of vaccine reactions occur within a few weeks. And already we have at least 60 days of safety data. And so there's no reason for us to think that there are long-term side effects. That said, I also think that we need to be very attentive to hearing concerns that people are expressing. Because what I've seen in recent days is whenever there are concerns, questions that people are raising, legitimate questions about side effects, about other types of effects and studies that that need to be done, I've seen that some people are labeling those types of questions as somehow being anti-vaccine. That's not right. I mean, we need to be compassionate about where people are. We also need to really meet people where they are in that understanding. And I think part of that understanding is expressing how urgent COVID-19 is as a crisis in the U.S. and around the world. And in this case, might there be some effects that we just simply don't know about It's in theory possible, it's extremely unlikely, but we also need to look at the existential threat that's facing us right now. The fact that 2,000 to 3,000 people are dying per day from coronavirus and everything is a risk-benefit analysis. And I think it's important to meet people with compassion and understanding and really just talk about everything that we know, everything that we don't yet know, how we're going to find out that information as a way to convince people to get the vaccine rather than trying to strong arm them to do so. So we have an audience question um, from Yu Chu
1: in Arkansas. Do we know how long protection will last after
0: vaccination? It's a great question and this is another one that we just don't know the answer to yet. And that's because the vaccines have just been developed. The clinical trials for the vaccines, the phase three clinical trials were just launched over the summer. Now we do have Good news thus far, because there was a New England Journal of Medicine study that found that the Moderna vaccine, and it's the same, um, it's the same um, te- technology as the Pfizer vaccine, lasts for at least 119 days. Now, it doesn't mean that it only lasts for 119 days, but it seems like the body is able to mount an immune response, um, a strong immune response after 119 days. So um, one hopes that it's going to be for longer. But the answer is that we don't know exactly how long. And that's why the post market surveillance, the monitoring of what happens once the vaccines are actually given to large numbers of people are going to be so important. And I will say, I mean, um, you had talked with Dr. Besser a bit earlier about um, about the the reaction that we're seeing the uh, what appears to be allergic reaction seen um, among some uh, among two or in two people who have gotten the vaccine in the uk this far there are going to be rare side effects that even if you have a side effect that's one in a million. If you're going to be giving this to 375 million people, you are going to see it in hundreds of people. And so I think we are going to learn about side effects that we don't yet know about, but it's important for every any time there is any hint of an adverse reaction, for that to be fully investigated immediately for all those results to be completely disclosed. Because again, I really fear more than anything a void of misinformation uh, or a void of information, in which case um, other things that are not accurate and sign-based will fill that void. Should schools require COVID-19 vaccinations? a really interesting point. Um, Right now, of course, not because the vaccines are actually not yet uh, being tested in children. I think Pfizer is just starting to test the the, the vaccine in children 12 and older. So obviously, when it's not yet tested and not yet made available, um, it should not be required. In time, though, this is not unreasonable because we already have um, schools that require other vaccinations. Um, I, as a healthcare worker, have to get the vaccine uh, or have to get the flu vaccine and a host of other vaccines in order to work. And so I think it's not unreasonable in time for there to be the expectation that the COVID vaccine, along with others, are mandatory. However, we have a long way to go before that's the case, including regarding access you cannot make something mandatory unless at least everybody has equitable access to it. So there are a lot of people
1: who think the vaccine is sort of a magic bullet that as soon as you start vaccinating people, we can sort of go back to our pre-pandemic lives. But I wonder if you can explain, even as the country begins vaccinating people, how are public health measures like social distancing and mask wearing going to play a role in 2021? And how long do you think it is before we get back to our pre-pandemic version of normal?
0: Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think everybody wants more than anything for all of this to be over so that we can get back to our normal lives. But it is really important to keep in mind that time course. As we talked about, Yasmin, we don't yet know whether the vaccine reduces your ability to still be an asymptomatic carrier. So unless we get more information about that, even after you get the vaccine, you should still be practicing social distancing, still wearing a mask. We estimate that at the point that about 70% of the American public end up getting the vaccine, that might be enough for us to reach that herd immunity through vaccination so that we're able to protect the entire population by having 70% of the people getting vaccinated. But until we get to that point, and maybe that'll be in the summer, maybe, I mean, that's the best case scenario is that we're able to get there at that point. But until we get there, we certainly have to keep up All these other what we call non-pharmaceutical measures the social distancing the masking etc the other way that we can think about this is the vaccine is what happens and what protects you if the virus already reaches you as in if the virus already reaches your body the mask is one layer of protection before that happens, before the virus even reaches your nose, your mouth, et cetera. And that physical distancing is even the layer that happens before that. If you're able to physical distance and keep at least six feet away from others outdoors, let's say, you're not not even in contact with the virus. And so each of these are different layers of protection. Now, my hope is that we'll be able to get our kids all vaccinated before the next school year so that the educational disparities that we have already seen and the COVID slide that we are already seeing will be able to be rectified this next school year. That's my hope. And I certainly hope that come next Thanksgiving, next Christmas, et cetera, that we'll be able to get together in person. But until then, I really do urge for everyone to double down on the things that we know will work. Because science, yes, will help us to save the day. But right now, there are thousands of people dying every day. And that science of the vaccine is not going to save us right now.
1: Well, in thinking about next year, uh, we have President elect Biden who announced several members of his new health team. They include Dr. Javier, uh, sorry, Javier Becerra as the HHS secretary, Dr. Vivek Murthy as the Surgeon General, and Dr. Rochelle Walensky as the CDC director. You know a lot of these folks. Um, What do you think they bring to the table in terms of the role that they'll play in trying to combat the pandemic next year?
0: I think that President-elect Biden and his team have made it so clear that their number one priority has to be containing the COVID-19 pandemic, that it is tied to everything else that we're going to be facing. And by the way, I, I think it's great in their framing that they have made it clear, too, that public health is not the enemy of the economy or business or anything else, that public health is the pathway back. I think that's actually something that Dr. Besser says that, um, that, uh, that public health is the roadmap to economic recovery. And I think it is really critical for us to focus on that. And so having experts within the team, um, within the President-elect's um, team who will focus on this will be really essential. I've known Dr. Murthy for a long time. We've known each other since residency. We also worked closely together when he was the Surgeon General and I was the Health Commissioner on issues like like the opioid epidemic, on mental health issues. These are all issues that also have not gone away with COVID-19. If anything, they've been amplified. And so turning our attention medium term to all these other issues that have been neglected thus far, not because of anyone's fault, but rather because COVID has just been so dominant in our lives. But focusing on these other public health issues will be really important as we also go forward and look at how something as basic as public health has been neglected. And in fact, that's how we got to the position that we are. And so, I, I hope that as President-elect Biden continues to build his 100-day plan, that he will look at these short-term, urgent actions as well as these medium-term priorities in strengthening our public health infrastructure.
1: Well, we're going to have to leave it there today, Dr. Lena Wen. Thank you so much for joining us and for that great and informative discussion.
0: Thank if you. If you'd so like much to ahead. watch,
1: thank you. If you'd like to watch highlights from our program today, head over to WashingtonPostLive.com. You'll also find our full calendar of events. Be sure to join us at 9 a.m. Eastern tomorrow. My colleague, Jonathan Capehart, will lead a roundtable discussion with opinion columnists who will discuss the biggest issues of the day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.